0: I'm Beth Bennett. Today is Tuesday, January 9th, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. For the start of a new year, many of us decide on resolutions to improve ourselves, our health, our relationships, or finances. But this year, I'm resolving to expand my efforts to improve our environment. In that spirit, I'm replaying an interview with John Valiant, author of Fire Weather and other books. John described the new breed of wildfires fueled by climate change. In his book, he delves into the causes and policy efforts to contain these beasts. But first, a look at some of the recent environmental news in science. Evidence of climate change continues to accumulate. One of the most obvious and possibly most significant is the loss of global ice. This ranges from mountain glaciers to Antarctic ice sheets. One of these sits at the South Pole, a continent-sized ice sheet that has been frozen for the past 34 million years. Scientists study the history of these massive ice sheets to decipher the conditions that led to their melting in the past. That understanding can help determine present-day conditions that could lead to a repeat melting, with potentially catastrophic increases in sea levels. One of these, the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, is vulnerable to irreversible collapse, and its tipping point may lie within the warming scenarios of 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade of the United Nations Paris Agreement. Despite decades of probing the West Antarctic Ice Sheet from the surface and from space, some important aspects of its history remain elusive. A really clever approach to this by an international team looked at genetic changes between two populations of a species of octopus. This species, Paralidone turqueti, for the interested, is found throughout Antarctic waters. Two distinct groups are separated by the present location of the West Antarctic ice sheet. When populations of the same species are separated, for example, by mountains, or in this case, by 34 million years of an ice sheet, they accumulate genetic changes. These changes can ultimately lead to the formation of a new species. These genetic changes accumulate at a relatively constant rate, allowing scientists to use the overall change between groups as a kind of molecular clock. In the case of the octopus, the researchers found evidence of past gene flow indicative of mixing between the now separate groups, only explainable by a complete collapse of the ice sheet. The findings from this study show that the West Antarctic ice sheet collapsed completely during the last interglacial period, when global sea levels were 5 to 10 meters higher than today, and global average temperatures were only about 1 degree centigrade warmer. In other words, the tipping point for the loss of this massive ice sheet could be reached even under stringent climate mitigation scenarios. This research was published last week in the journal Science.
1: As if Colorado isn't already thirsty and fire prone, a new comprehensive study on how climate change will impact the state brings some dire warnings, such as temperatures in the state will keep rising, bringing 10 times as many summer heat waves wildfire seasons will grow more intense, and the water supply will keep shrinking. The report, written by researchers at Colorado State University, is the third edition of the climate study. The first was in 2008. Warming temperatures will also negatively impact agriculture, as well as water supplies, according to the report. In general, the state's average annual temperatures warmed by 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit from 1980 to to 2022, with the greatest amount of warming happening during the fall season. Becky Bollinger, the lead author of the report and the assistant state climatologist for Colorado, said in a statement that the study verifies projections found in earlier reports and updates them to extend out for decades. She noted that the observed warming trend is strongly linked to the overall human influence on climate. Bullinger added that by 2050, Colorado's statewide annual temperatures are projected to warm by 2.5 to 5.0 degrees Fahrenheit. That's compared to the late 20th century, and then 1, one to 4 degrees compared to what we see today. So for skiers and snowboarders, to say nothing of others, the future looks pretty dicey. Bollinger noted that the warming trend will continue by 2050. Seasonal peak snowpack date is projected to happen earlier in the spring than it does now. She added that the state would need a large overall increase in precipitation to offset the effects of warming, and that such an outcome appears unlikely. The report is meant to help inform future management and planning of Colorado's water resources. The research was funded by Denver Water and the Colorado Water Conservation Board. For KGNU, How on Earth, this is Susan Moran.
0: John Valiant has written extensively about the natural world over his long career as an author. In his recent book *Fire Weather*, a true story from a hotter world, he explores the phenomena of fire, the wildland-urban interface, and climate change in the context of a precedent-shattering combustion in a modern city. This colossal wildfire in Alberta in 2016 almost consumed a city of nearly 100,000. In the process, the fire blew up expectations and responses to previous wildfires. Valiant gives an in-depth exploration of the rapidly changing relationship between fire and humankind, along with personal stories of loss and bravery on the front lines of this horrifying event. Welcome to the show, John. I'm speaking with John Valiant today. And he came up recently with a book that is just remarkable called Fire Weather, A True Story from a Hotter World. And, you know, to tell the truth, John, this, you talk about this fire that occurred, oh, about seven years ago now, and it was not on my radar here in Colorado. I think we had plenty of our own fires, but this is really an amazing story that you described. So I want to get into the, the science of fire weather and how climate change is affecting that and affecting fires, but give us a little background about Fort McMurray and the conditions that were... Uh, in place at the time that led to this unbelievable fire.
2: Sure, thanks Beth. Uh, Fort McMurray is in Alberta, 600 miles north of the U.S. border. And it has a population uh, permanent and uh, guest worker of about 90,000. And it's a really remote place in the boreal forest surrounded literally by hundreds of miles of Northern boreal forest. And what they do up there is mine and extract through other methods, bitumen, which is used as a feedstock for synthetic crude oil. And Fort McMurray is almost by itself the largest source of imported oil for the United States. And Canada's the biggest source of imports, and 90% of those imports originate in the bitumen mines and uh, SAGD complexes of Fort McMurray.
0: Sorry to interrupt, I just think this will be a surprise to many of the local listeners because a lot of people here assume that those tar sands projects, as people here call them, uh, got canceled a long time ago.
2: Well, there's a famous lawsuit right now, Suncor Enbridge uh, versus Boulder. And Suncor, which has offices, I believe, right in Boulder or maybe in Denver, is one of the biggest uh, bitumen producers in the world, and it's based up in Fort McMurray. Uh, no, bitumen is alive and well. Lots of foreign companies have pulled out of it, but Canadian owned companies or consortia uh, that are you know, part Chinese or something else have stepped in to fill the gap. And the production up there is colossal. The impact on the environment is colossal and um, it was overrun by a wildfire on May 3rd uh, 2016, and the fire burnt inside the city for days. There were firestorms still sweeping through neighborhoods on May 5th. Two weeks later, work camps and houses were still burning down. It was an unbelievable conflagration, and it was precipitated by desert dry heat uh, up in the uh, low 90s which you know for northern Alberta is insanely hot almost 25 degrees above the average temperature for that time of year. The humidity relative humidity was around 10 or 11 percent you know that's like Southern California or Death Valley and uh, you add some wind to that and you have basically what's as good as gasoline for a fire. And so the worst case scenario happened. It was really like the the wildfire equivalent to Hurricane Katrina. So it wasn't New Orleans, it was Fort Fort McMurray and the result was the largest most rapid evacuation of people due to fire in modern times anywhere on earth.
0: Yeah, you, the description of the evacuation is just unbelievable. I mean, you, you... You go into so much detail, and I, I just imagine you embedding yourself with all these people that were there and, and reconstructing uh, a minute-by-minute minute experience of what went on. So can you talk just a little bit about what that experience was like? I can't even imagine 90,000 people you know, on those roads trying to get out of the city, and no one died.
2: Well, because that is a miracle, Beth. It really is. And it's, it's actually a very religious town not just Evangelical Christian, but there are lots of Muslims up there. There are lots of Hindus up there. There are actually 80 different first languages spoken in Fort McMurray. It's an extraordinary melting pot. You know, Canada is an unusual place and Fort McMurray is an unusual place within that. Um, The evacuation was chaotic. It was called late uh, and people mostly found out, that they needed to go because their neighborhood was on fire. So people were calling each other, people were looking out the window and what had been a uh, crystal clear, bluebird, Vancouver, uh, sorry, uh, Alberta Day. Um, three hours earlier, there was now a 40,000 foot tall fire cloud bearing down on them and a shower of embers and ash preceding it. So they, people in this very random but concerted way, sought to escape. And many of these new developments, probably not that different from Boulder, really just have one road in and, so, and one road out, of course. And it's the same, in fact, with Fort McMurray. There's only one road in there. It's actually a four-lane highway now, but all four lanes were filled with traffic. Uh, moving at a crawl while the forests on either side burst into flames and I'm talking hundred foot 200 foot you know fireballs and fire dragons as firefighters call them just billowing and swirling over the roadway as their houses exploded and when I say explode I don't mean that lightly the heat was so intense that day the projected heat from the from the fire coming in from the forest that it caused, These modern homes, which have a lot more petroleum products than any of us would really like to think or believe, and the same is true for Boulder, Uh, it caused these petroleum products to vaporize, volatilize, and explode into flame almost simultaneously. So what sometimes occurs in closed uh, rooms and houses, it's called flashover. This was occurring outside, over neighborhoods. So I spoke to firefighters about this and they said, yeah, it took about five minutes for a house to burn down. And I really challenged them on this. I said, what are you talking about five minutes? He said, no, from the house standing there without any fire on it to a flaming basement was five minutes.
0: Quite incredible. And I wanted to give the listeners a little background as to that human experience, because as you no doubt know, there was a fire in Boulder a year and a half ago in the middle yes. of winter, right. which is not fire season, of course, and yeah. you know burned over 1,000 homes or structures, yes. I, should, I yes. should say. And there was that same kind of chaotic lack of organized evacuation. So I know that our listeners, many of them, can empathize with what was going on. So let's jump into the science, because that's a big part of the book. What is it about the way the climate is changing now and that specifically affected Alberta that caused this huge fire. And I guess, I mean, we're getting smoke from Alberta as I speak, and I guess it's going on, you know, probably every year with, with the May weather pattern.
2: Yes. Uh, Well, when you uh, increase anything by 50%, you're going to notice it, you know, whether it's rainfall or blood pressure or the number of rats in your neighborhood. (laughs) Uh, So if you increase CO2, atmospheric CO2 by 50%, as we have done since pre-industrial times, circa 1750, you're going to notice changes. And the most excellent uh, atmospheric scientists and chemists uh, hired by Exxon and Chevron and Shell, who did research on this in the 1970s and 80s, predicted this. And they said, starting around 2000, we're going to start to notice temperature change that's going to rise above the kind of ambient noise, if you want to call it that, of normal temperature fluctuation. We're going to start to see these surges and pulses of heat. And that, of course, is exactly what we're experiencing now. So what we have created through relentless fossil fuel burning is an atmosphere that now retains more heat and creates an environment on Earth that is much more conducive to fire, because when you have a hotter atmosphere, that facilitates evaporation. And so in a place like the Boreal Forest, which already hosts huge fires, in fact, is a fire-dependent ecosystem, it's normal to have massive fires there. But if you boost the temperature 20 or 30 degrees and you drop the humidity by 10 or 20%, you're changing the chemistry and the parameters of what's possible. And so you get... What would have been a really intense fire in 1990 is now an explosive fire that nobody can put out and that will burn far longer, far hotter than it might have in in previous decades.
0: And can you talk about some of the phenomena that apparently were quite, um, I don't want to say unique because they're probably going to be happening more, but were maybe first uh, described with that um, Alberta fire, like this, the fire cyclones and the stratospheric effects that went on for months afterwards?
2: Yes. Uh, so there's a kind of fire cloud now that we're now getting way too familiar with. It's called a pyrocumulonimbus cloud. And it is born out of gigantic fire systems. And where people used to see them, you know, we're talking about atmospheric scientists and aerosol Uh, chemists and people like that, where they were easiest to study was in volcanoes. And that's the big black cloud you see surging up out of the volcano and it's got lightning in it. Well now, starting in the late 1990s, these same scientists were noticing that these were occurring over wildfires. And British Columbia and Alberta has now become almost a nursery for these giant fire cloud systems and they can attain heights of 45,000 feet. So fully penetrating the stratosphere, they can be the size of Greece. You know, they can cover 50,000 square miles of area. They can produce their own lightning, which can start fires 20, 30 miles away from the place that's actually burning. So they become they're still so, And they're so big, they turn the same way, uh, hurricanes do. They're impacted by the Coriolis effect. So what you have is this giant fire perpetuation system sending out its own lightning, igniting the forest around it. And there is no way to stop these things. And so what firefighters are discovering, and this is what was really alarming for the first responders in Fort McMurray, you know, they went up, into these neighborhoods to put fires out. And all they could do, because the hose streams vaporized 100 feet before they hit any of the burning houses, it was so hot. It was basically as hot as Venus in between these houses. So they couldn't fight the fire. All they could do was help with the evacuation. And the same thing happened in Redding, California in 2018, during that terrible fire tornado. A firefighting operation was forced purely by virtue of the fire's own energy to become instead a life-saving operation.
0: Yeah, you did say that um, those firefighters, they completely gave up on trying to save any structures. It was just way beyond their capacity. And it sounds like they didn't really have anything to do or very little to do with saving the lives other than directing traffic as people left town
2: they were pretty fearless in terms of going down burning streets knocking on doors of houses that were still standing uh they you know i the analogy for me was like those firefighters who went up into the world trade centers you know that they were in a situation that was far beyond anything that they understood they knew that they were going into a really ominous dangerous situation but you know, to their credit, the firefighters and first responders in Fort McMurray—they went up those burning hilltop roads and they looked for people, and everybody got out. Not a single person was lost to the flames.
0: Yeah, that is really remarkable. And you know, you you also cover. There's there's so much we can't talk about what you cover in the book, but you do cover um, the 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 this phenomenon of these increasingly um, intense and large scale fires all over the the globe. And, and also this phenomenon of fire as being a really pervasive kind of event that one that we don't often think about, like just cellular respiration is a form of fire. So there's just fire on mm-hmm. all these different scales. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I, I hadn't really been aware of was your description of the Permian extinction, how that was um, instigated by this same kind of climate change, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago and could you touch really briefly on that because I think that has some parallels for our current situation and it is pretty horrifying.
2: Yeah the Permian age was about 300 million to 250 million years ago starting around 249 million years ago uh, a series of volcanic eruptions in what is now Siberia were triggered and they were massive and they persisted for thousands of years, and they created this gigantic slab of basalt the size of Alaska, which is now you know in- integrated into Siberia. But these relentless uh, eruptions generated so much ash, so much CO2, uh, and I-, I believe methane as well, that they changed the climate to the point that it became uh, almost, uh, well, it became toxic to well over half of all living species. And likewise, we know that CO2 is also absorbed by the oceans. The ocean, the oceans at that time became so uh, rich, if you want to call it that, with carbonic acid that uh, most of the sea life died. And so it, it's called the Permian extinction. It's also called the Great Dying uh, it was an absolutely cataclysmic time and really was sort of a reset for the planet because so much of uh, the life, the pre-existing life was simply wiped out.
0: And it and, is really encouraging that life came back. Of course, you know, if we continue on our pathway, it's not going to help us too much, that note of optimism.
2: You know, I, there's uh, I mean, it's it, it there's a there's sort of a, a, a balm, if you will, in thinking like a scientist, you know, we are not going to kill the earth, right? Uh, but we're going to kill many species and we are going to have terrific impacts on the near and midterm future. And, you know, who's really going to be feeling that are our fellow human beings. And so we have a, you know, we have a really hard road ahead of us, especially if we continue to burn hydrocarbons at the rate that we're currently doing.
0: And you do a really thorough job of, of, presenting and describing the history of scientists trying to make this process known and you know speaking to congress and um having um public statements writing books and it's pretty depressing how their message has been not only ignored but covered up and denied so you know based on where we are in that whole process after 40 50 years of of really great efforts by Climate scientists and others to change our course. What do you think is going to happen?
2: Well, I think we uh, you know one of the things that happened in the Fort McMurray fire is the bitumen industry was basically shut down by the fire. And what's happening in Alberta right now is oil and gas projects are being forced to shut down by the fire. If not by the fire itself, then by the smoke that workers can no longer work safely in. So we are creating circumstances that are increasingly bad for business. And I think more and more people outside the petroleum business are realizing, are, are connecting the dots. And so, you know, for example, just today, France has said no more short-haul jet flights out of France. Oh, That is, that is huge climate action. Likewise, Reuters about 10 days ago reported that India has just declared... No new coal-fired electricity plants. That's India, the most populous nation on Earth right now. That is a planetary change. And so if they stand by that, that is going to bear dividends down the road that we may not live to see, but our grandkids might see it. Uh, And that's where we're at right now. We, We paid it forward with the CO2. We supercharged our atmosphere with CO2. Now we have to pay it forward by reducing. Uh, right. The rate of hydrocarbon burning. Right.
0: Well, I'm I'm happy to hear those notes of optimism, and so I think on that note we'll we'll leave it so that we don't we leave the listeners with a, a little bit of hope for the future. But I will encourage people to read the book. It's a it's a great history of not only climate science but of fire and social um, perturbation. That's that's caused by these cataclysmic natural events. And um, I'll link to the book and your website in our show notes.
2: Thanks very much.
0: That was author John Valiant discussing his recent book, Fire Weather. He explores the phenomena of wildfire, the urban wildland interface, and climate change in the context of a precedent shattering fire in a modern city, not far from our border, an eerie harbinger of the Marshall fire of just two years ago. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Joel Parker is our executive producer and I produce this week's show. Susan Moran provides six headline. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, additional music by the Beatles, and of course, Fire by Jimi Hendrix. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material referenced in the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X if you go there.